So in thinking about uh, this week and, and um, what I preached last week, this is kind of the second part of what I started last week. And I'd like to call this message, Underneath Are the Everlasting Arms. We're talking about suffering. We're talking about why bad things happen in our lives and how can we learn to handle that. And here's a, an amazing, amazing scripture in Deuteronomy 33:27. It says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Uh, Isaiah 46, verse 4 says this, Even in your old age... I will be the same, and even in your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. These are two amazing promises from God for us as His children. And I've chosen these scriptures this morning to underpin everything that I want to say to you today. And last, last week I spoke about the kingly rule of God. So the the old-fashioned word is providence, the providence of God. Uh, and that His sovereign authority is over our lives. And my challenge to you was, do you believe it? Do you really believe that God cares for every single detail of your life? Uh, or do you believe, that, as our culture kind of tries to encourage us to believe, that uh, your life is random chance, as atheists would say, or that it's determined by fate, as fatalists would say, it's all, all your star sign. That's what determines your life, is your star sign. Or, or um, it's your biology, as Darwinians would say. Well, we don't have really anything to do with uh, how we are. It's all, just, it's all just evolution, and it's biology, and we can't control anything. Now, those are the things that our secular culture says are the things that shape you as a person. And rather, I tried to urge you and encourage you last week to believe that your life is in the loving hands of a loving, good Father whose arms underpin everything that you go through in your life. And I understand that that can be a challenge because we look at the circumstances in our lives and sometimes those take away from that sense of God's arms under our lives. But I, I, want, to, want, to, want, to, want to once again say this morning that we have a loving Father who's working all things in our lives to the good in spite of the bad things that happen along the way. And this is, this is the mystery of the Christian teaching of God's kingly rule in our lives. And uh, as we come to terms with it, it really helps us to understand a little bit more clearly uh, how we can face difficulties and challenges in our lives. And the example that I used last week was Joseph. Remember Joseph? After 20 years of uh, being betrayed by his brothers, he's uh, now the prime minister of Egypt. And uh, it says at the end that he, his brothers come and he looks at them and his heart is broken and he weeps. And if someone could help me with the little girl up there, that would be very helpful because... Um, thank you. Thank you, Mandy. That's really cool. <laughs> and so Joseph says at the end of his life, when his brothers come towards him, he says directly to them, you intended all of these things for evil. You did this to me. You threw me down the well. You betrayed me. You lied to my father. You did these things to me, but God meant it for good. 
And this is how we can understand God's providence in our lives. Sometimes we don't understand it going forward, but looking back on our lives, we can see the hand of God. And this is the mystery of the Christian teaching about God's providence. And I don't understand it fully, completely, but we have to be able to live as Christians with some mystery in our lives. And so having said that, I want to look a little bit more directly with you this morning and think about suffering. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the world is crazy. It is just unbelievably out of control at the moment. Suffering is everywhere. It's unavoidable. Often it's, it kind of feels like it's going to overwhelm us. Uh, during this next hour, five children will have died from abuse. Five in one hour. Over the next 24 hours, more than 100 children will have died from some kind of abuse. And that's only one form of suffering, and thousands more die in traffic accidents or from cancer. Uh, every, uh, every, every hour of every day, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world lose their loved ones to old age or cancer or some kind of disease. Yeah, in addition to that, we have uh, these massive events like the 2004 Indian tsunami, the 2010 Haiti earthquake. Uh, those single events killed more than 300,000 people in one single event. And they, they make brief headlines, and we, um, we remember them for a moment, but quickly uh, we forget. And every single day, as I've said, thousands suffer tragedies that we never hear about, that never make the headlines. And it seems sometimes like evil and suffering is so pervasive, it's so, so part of our lives, that whenever we hear these kind of statistics, we hardly even blink. It's just like another thing. And when we hear these stories... I don't know about you, but often we can kick into this default kind of mechanism in which we say things like this to ourselves. It only happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. It only happens to poor people. It only happens to people who are fortunate, unfortunate to live in areas of the world where there's poverty. It won't happen to me. Or it only happens to people that don't take necessary precautions to stop those things happening. In other words, we, we're saying to ourselves that if I play my cards right, it's never really going to happen to me. <laughs> That's what we try and tell ourselves. And yet, in, if we're honest, in all of our lives, there's, a, there's an underlying kind of panic that begins to set in when you realize that you are mortal and that you are going to die and that the end is not too far away. I, I, I'm not trying to be... Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to be... Um, somber this morning, but uh, as I've uh, had my 50th birthday a couple of years ago, I realize now I'm closer to the end than I was to the, uh, than I am to the beginning. And uh, it helps you to, no, I mean, I might not have another 20 years left if I'm, if I'm lucky, if God blesses me. But, but it is a reality, isn't it? As your life passes, you realize, hey, it's going quickly and I'm getting, I'm getting in the second half of the race now. And so I want to try and convince you this morning, this is my aim this morning as I preach this message, to live well and joyfully against the backdrop of all the realities of evil that we see in the world, all right? That we can live well, that we can live joyfully, that we can know the reality of God's everlasting arms underneath our lives. That you would know that promise for yourself, that He wants to bear you, He wants to carry you, that He wants to deliver you, and that is His promise towards you. And you can understand that in the midst of all the terrible things that we see 
in the world. And I know in this congregation, there are people that have had tragedy. How can we live joyfully in the midst of that? And, and we need to live in the midst of, of, of tragedy with joy because over the course of our lives, there will be the loss of those that we love. Some of those that we love deeply will die of unexpected illnesses. There will be personal betrayal. There might be financial loss. There might be some moral failure that eventually touches us or our extended family. And I want to say to you kindly, that is normal. No one is immune. I, I don't care how wealthy you are. <laughs> I don't, I don't uh, care how many precautions you've taken. And, and we need to. I mean, I, I like to exercise and keep healthy. Why? Because I do want to live as long as possible. But none of us is immune from any of those kind of things. No amount of power can prevent the loss of those that you love. No, or, or through illness or relationship betrayal or some fin financial disaster. There are a host of things. Life does involve tragedy. And I want to say to you this morning, my, my encouragement to you as Christian believers is that we all of us need support, all of us need help, and if we're not going to give in to despair and we're going to live well and we're going to live joyfully, and my argument this morning, I will argue this morning, that that support primarily must be spiritual. I will argue that it's the knowledge of God as a good father who is always holding you in his everlasting arms that is the most important thing to know more than anything else. That's what I'm arguing for this morning. I've been involved in leading church now for over 25 years, and I see two things uh, generally when, when we talk about suffering. I've seen it in the lives of people. He has two basic responses to suffering. For one people, the main reason that they resist God, that they don't want to open their hearts to God, and they reject God is because of suffering. They will say, how can a loving God possibly allow this stuff to happen? And I've found that doubts in people's minds grow alongside the pain of their hearts. As the pain in the heart increases, so does the doubt. That's one group of people. They are also, and uh, what's fascinating to me, sometimes people can be completely indifferent towards God. You can read of some uh, Hollywood superstar that has never thought about God much or, or shown a life that demonstrates a relationship with God in any way, and then yet they, they get really upset when suffering touches their life, and, and you can read about people lashing out and saying, how could God allow this to happen? We're loving God. Why would He allow this stuff to happen? That's one kind of response. And yet, at the same time, there are others, and I've met people like this, who seem to find God through suffering. Exactly the opposite. It's like suffering draws their hearts, and the grace of God draws them through the pain that they are experiencing. And so rather than moving away from Him, they start to move towards Him. And they start to realize they can't do it on their own, and they need the, the, the touch of a loving Father. And so there are these two things. One group of people that are pushed away from God through suffering, and another group of people that are drawn closer through suffering. And uh, I'm sure you know this um, quote very well, uh, C.S. Lewis, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. You know, that's one thing to know in principle, that Jesus is all you need. That's what it's saying. Jesus is all you need. <laughs> but you don't really know Jesus is all that you need until... 
till Jesus is all that you have. <laughs> when you are nothing else, then you know that Jesus is all you need. You know, I, I want to say to the guys who are coming to Cambodia, when you come to Cambodia, and you, you don't have to worry about people responding for prayer. Pray for healing. Pray for whatever. Does anyone need prayer? They are there, a queue of 80 people, 60 people. Why? Because Jesus is all they have. They trust with all their hearts for healing, for, for every kind of thing in their lives. They realize that they can't in themselves meet all these things, and they are there for prayer. And this, that's why the supernatural begins to move. The third thing I want to say by way of introduction is that I'm convinced one of the main themes of the Bible is the reality of suffering. Genesis begins with the account of evil and death coming into the world. And Exodus tells the story of 40 years of wilderness experience, which is a time of testing and time of trial for the people of Israel. The Old Testament book, wisdom books, they largely deal with pain and suffering. The book of Psalms provides answers, and they're all the writers of the Psalms crying out in, in, in um, many ways to God about how can evil prosper, and, and why am I someone who's following you? Why am I experiencing this? And the evil guys in the world seem to be prospering. The Psalms are full of those kind of questions. Job, Ecclesiastes, the prophets, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, all speak into this question of why evil seems to prosper in human history. In the New Testament, Hebrews and 1 Peter are almost exclusively helping us to deal with sorrow in our lives and trouble. And of course, over all of this is the, the figure of Jesus. Described as a man of sorrows, described as a man of suffering, and the Bible, if it's about anything at all, is about, is, is, is about suffering. So, what I want to try and do today is rather than think about this in a philosophical kind of way, uh, that's so kind of, you know, we, we can go around and debate why does God allow suffering? And uh, there are classical um, uh, Christian answers to that which we can talk about another day. Free will, fallen world, all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's really philosophical, isn't it? I mean, so people can say, well, I agree with that, and I don't agree with that. But here's the, here's the rub. It doesn't help you to get through a bad time, does it? You can, you can have all your philosoph philosophical answers as to why God allows suffering. But when you are going through a desperately hard time, it doesn't matter what philosophical answer you have. You need to get through that hard thing right now. And I want to say that to you, that your theology yeah, people say to me, oh, I don't really, you know, theology. Theology is what you understand about God. You have to be able to live by your theology. And so I don't really care what you might say philosophically about suffering. What is your theology? What helps you get through the darkest times of your life when you know this thing is going to kill me? That's what I'm talking about. And I want to say to you that we can live joyfully in those times because of what Christ has done for us. And I want to say to you this morning that the gospel offers a unique answer as to why we can be joyful in the midst of terrible things that we experience. And this is the victory of the cross. This is the victory of the gospel. And so I want to look at um, a couple of cultural responses. And remember, last week I talked about the overarching worldview that we have. Some people are atheistic. Some people are dualistic. Some people are fatalistic. So all these things we looked at last week, I'm going to unpack that a little bit more now in terms of how cultures respond to suffering. 
Because what cultures do is they help the people of that culture navigate through terrible affliction and evil. And so when we look at other world religions and uh, teachings of philosophy, most of them, in fact, all of them try and explain the meaning of pain and suffering. And sociologists or anthropologists, they, they will study these things and try and compare the way that different cultures help the people of those cultures maintain uh, a sense of, of, of um, sanity as they go through grief and pain and loss. And I want to put it to you this morning that our secular Western culture is the absolute worst of all the cultures that ever have been in helping people to cope with bad things. It is useless, this culture in which we live. I want to put it to you that our Western secular humanist culture gives no explanation for suffering and very little guidance with, to people to how to deal with it. And if you take a, a, a moment to kind of surf the internet after any tragic thing that happens, like mass shootings or whatever, you can see a variety of responses out of people's hearts as they respond to those things. I read uh, uh, of a, uh, in uh, December 2012, there was a shooting in Newtown, Newtown in, in New York where a sniper shot people randomly. Do you remember that situation? And there were a whole lot of people that uh, there was a, a Roman Catholic guy who wrote a letter to the New, New, New York Times, and he, he kind of had the classic response, why, why God, why did you allow this to happen? And so he wrote his letter and was published. And in response to the letter, a number of other letters were written in by different people in response to the letter of this Roman Catholic guy. And so some, some people said it actually was just karma. It's karma. You know, this, the idea that suffering in your present is payback for something of your past. Other people had a more Buddhist kind of worldview. They say, oh, no, this is all just, you know, these are terrible things that happened, but this is all just an illusion here anyway, and what is really important is that we, we achieve enlightenment and become one with the universe, and, and so this is all illusory anyway, all the stuff that happens. There were others that had a more traditional Christian worldview, and they were convinced that despite the terrible thing that had happened to those people, they would, see the, they, they would see them again in heaven one day. There were the other, others that uh, said things like, suffering makes you stronger. You heard that expression? What kill, doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You think that's a Christian thought? Actually, no, it's not. It's a, that's a Stoic thought. That's an ancient Greeks thought like that. No disrespect to the Greeks, all right? And then there are others, those that are more atheistic, that say the only response, it can't be a spiritual response, the only res response that is appropriate is to take action against the things in the world, because this world is all that we have, it's just material. Uh, the only thing that we can do is to take away those things that caused the suffering in the first place. So uh, as secular humanists, what we must do is work really hard to make this world a better place, because that's really all that we get. We only got this world, we got nothing else, so let's do our best to make this world a better place. And uh, I agree with that. But my point is that when you look at a, a situation like that, people are finding no answers in our secular humanist culture, rarely, and they have to go outside of our culture to Buddhist thought or to Hindu thought or to some kind of other thought to get some kind of help to navigate through these tragedies. And in the end, our secular humanist culture is more shocked and undone by suffering than, 
than any of our ancestors were. Here are some things that I've, I've, I've read recently. You know, in medieval Europe, one in every five children, infants, died before their first birthday. One in five. And they didn't die in some kind of pristine hospital somewhere. They died in people's homes where they were faced daily with death. Only half of children in, in, in uh, Europe, in medieval Europe, survived to the age of 10. Only half. The average family buried half of their children when they were still very little and their children died at home with them. For, for our ancestors, their lives were filled with much more suffering than ours. And if you don't want to believe me, there are countless diaries, journals, letters, and other documents that show how people took hardship and grief much more in their stride than we do. I read recently of one of uh, this guy said, um, who studied European history, he said, it's unnerving for modern readers to see how much more unafraid people were 1,500 years ago of death in the face of loss, violence, suffering, and death. Another guy said, we might be taken aback at the cruelty we see in our ancestors. They would, if they could see us, be equally shocked at our softness, our worldliness, and our timidity. And I put it to you that we are also weaker than other people in the world at the, this point in time in dealing with suffering. I read of this guy, uh, Paul Brandt, who's an orthopedic surgeon. And uh, he, he treats people with leprosy. And he spent the first half of his life in uh, India and the last part of his career in the United States. This is what he writes. This is what he says. In the United States, I encountered a society that sought to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a far greater level of comfort than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. And he asks, why? Why does that happen? Well, I put it to you the short, in a short answer that other cultures provide their members with various answers to the question, what is the purpose of life? Why do we suffer? And they all offer answers. So, for example, I mentioned it already, but some cultures say that the goal is to live a good life. And if you live a good life, you will eventually escape the cycle of karma and reincarnation and be liberated. This is a classic uh, Hindu way of thinking. Uh, the other thing I've mentioned already is Buddhism, which says actually the goal is to achieve enlightenment. And so, there's this recognition that all things are one. The universe is one. And as we attain internal uh, tranquility and bliss, we one day will re reach enlightenment and we will become one with the universe. This is the idea of Buddhism. Others have said uh, the thing we need to do is live a noble life, full of virtue, full of honor. And some say the ultimate thing is to go to heaven one day and live with your loved ones and with God forever. You see, now, in some ways, those views look a little bit disconnected, but in other ways, they have something in common. Every one of those views says that suffering, despite the fact that it's incredibly painful, can be an important way that you actually achieve something of the purpose for your life. In other words, suffering can be an important chapter through which you can learn and you can uh, achieve, the, achieve the main purpose for your life. But the, our modern secular culture is completely different. And our modern secular culture says that this material world is all that there is. And so the 
the, the ultimate freedom is to be happy. This is, the, this is the ultimate freedom. And so suffering can have no meaningful part of that. Must be avoided or minimized as much as possible. So here are four ways that traditional cultures help us understand suffering. The first is a moralistic kind of view. And so they, the, the, this kind of view says that pain and suffering comes from the failure of people to live rightly. So if you and I honor God's model order, it'll go right with us. If we disobey God, we're going to have some pain. That's the basic idea. Or the second view is that, like Buddhism, we must transcend ourselves. Suffering comes from desire. And so if you feel too much joy, you will feel some pain when that joy is removed. This is, this is a Buddhist kind of view. So detach yourself. Detach your heart. Don't live with that sense of anxiety. Detach your heart. If you can do that, you won't suffer. You won't feel suffering. And so Buddhism's goal is to achieve a calmness in our soul by which all desires and individuality and sufferings are dissolved. Self-transcendent view, moralistic view. Thirdly, there's a high view of fate and destiny, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit last week, you know, that we, can, we live by the stars or whatever has been fated for us. Or in the, in, in the Muslim tradition, it's the inscrutable will of Allah. You can never quite know the will of Allah. It's just that's what Allah says is okay, and it's kind of your fate. That's it. It's a fatalism in that. Or the ancient pagan cultures in North uh, Europe, which I mentioned last week. Remember the battle at the end of all time? Nangarok, where all the heroes that have ever lived are going to take on the giants and all the evil forces in the world, and they're going to actually be defeated <laughs> in this great battle at the end of time. And so these, these cultures teach you must stand your ground, face hopeless odds against you, die heroic death, that you live on in song and legend. That's how you achieve Im or, or, or immortality. You live on in song and legend. We've talked about these things last week. But all of these cultures, all of these views of the world, what do they do? They teach that actually... Suffering should not be a surprise. It's a necessary part of our lives as human beings. And secondly, they all teach that suffering can help you grow and ensure that you achieve the main purpose in your life, whether it's spiritual growth, whether it's the mastery of yourself, whether it's achieving honor or promoting goodwill for your life, whatever it is. And there's a sense, thirdly, that they say you must take some responsibility and how you respond is, uh, is a very important in all of this process. And I put it to you, again, that our modern secular culture is completely different. Its view is that all of this world is entirely, entirely materialistic. There's no purpose. It's all random chance. It's not the result of sin or some kind of cosmic battle. It's, uh, it says simply that tragedy that happens is an accident, and we have to, to uh, deal with that. And I quoted Richard Dawkins last week. I want to quote him again. He says here, 
in this book, River Out of Eden. He says that the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect. At, at the bottom, there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's our secular view. That's an atheistic view. And it's a radical departure from everything else that the world has taught for thousands of years. And in Dawkins' view, he says that people, the, re the reason that people struggle with suffering is simply because they will not accept that life has no purpose. That's what he says. If you just accept that life has no purpose, you won't struggle with suffering. In a senseless universe where there's not good or evil, uh, why get upset, you know? It's just your luck. And he says, in fact, that to deny life is like that is empty, empty pointless, futile, and uh, uh, anyone who looks to spiritual resources to find meaning or purpose in suffering is infantile. That's his words. He says, basically, if you look for any kind of spiritual answer to your problem, you are a baby. You are an infant. This is Dawkins, right? You see, the problem I have with all of this is that it's not the way that we live. It's not the way that people are wired. What dignifies us as human beings is that we try and find meaning and purpose in our lives at the deepest level. That's what sets us apart from, human, uh, from animal species, that we find meaning in our lives in what we go through. And so the implications of this kind of Dawkins view is that it takes all the responsibility away from us. And it just says, when you suffer, medicate yourself, go to a psychologist, alleviate the pain by removing the cause of the pain, and there's nothing you can learn out of it. And I have a problem with that, because there's so many different conflicting solutions that people give, psycholo psychological um, stuff or whatever it is, to, to help us navigate through, and they all conflict with each other. So what, what then, lastly, as I finish this morning, what does Christianity have to say about all of this? Well, I believe that the gospel offers us a completely unique approach to handling bad things that happen in our lives. In the gospel, in, 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 as Christians, in, in, with Christian faith, Christians are permitted and encouraged to express their grief with cries, with questions, crying out to God, like in the book of Psalms. Unlike Buddhists, we believe, Christians believe, that suffering is not an illusion, it is real. <laughs> and that you go through it, you and I go through it, difficult things. Pain is pain. Misery is misery. There's no diminishing of pain that you kind of somehow achieve tranquility and bliss. Why do I say that? I point you to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in uh, Mark 14, 34. Jesus praying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. This is what Jesus says. It's not like he's meditating. Oh God, give me inner peace right now. Help me to detach my heart right now that I can feel oneness with the universe. Is he doing that? No, he's not. He's saying, my soul is so desperate at this point, I feel like I'm going to die. That's what Jesus is saying. He's identifying in every way with pain because he, he wants us to know that he's identified with our pain in every way. 
It says in other, it says my, in other portions, it says that his sweat is drops like sweats of, like beads of, of blood. He is so kind of overwhelmed. And then he prays right at the end, not my will, but your will be done, Father. No, Christians are, Christians are encouraged to express what they are feeling deeply. Secondly, un, unlike karma, Christians believe that suffering is unjust often. It is unfair and it is disproportionate often. Life is simply not fair. People that live well sometimes don't do well. And that's clearly stated in the book of Job, where God condemns Job's friends for the insistence that his pain and suffering was caused by him living a morally inferior life. And I would say to you, most of all, we can see that in the life of Jesus. If anyone deserved a good life in terms of, how they, of their moral behavior and how they lived, it was Jesus. If anyone deserved a good life in terms of his character, it was Jesus, but he didn't get it. And the whole of the Christian faith is centered around an innocent man, Jesus, freely receiving the suffering and the debts of others. And so, because of his death, he transforms that for you and I. And thirdly, unlike a moralistic view of the universe, Christianity doesn't see suffering as a means of working off your debts. Nowhere in the, the, the Christian faith say that uh, voluntary suffering makes you more spiritual. Uh, that's, that's kind of what the ancient Greek believes. That uh, you know, a, dualist, a dualist view of the world says there are good people and there are bad people. That's what you can, that you can separate the world into good people and bad people. And if you're a good person and you suffer at the hands of a bad person, you have a right to look down on them and say, I'm better than you. I'm morally superior than you because you're doing me harm. Well, Christianity teaches that all of us, all of us have evil and potential for evil with inside ourselves, and it cuts through the heart of every single one of us. There's no superiority in the kingdom for Christians. And lastly, I ask you what is most unique, what most dominates the Christian worldview in terms of suffering is the idea of God's grace. God's kindness. You see, we believe as Christians that every one of us have received forgiveness, know the love of God, have been adopted into the family of God, and we don't deserve any of those things. But when we know those things, it frees us from a whole lot of stuff. It frees us from the temptation of feeling sorry for ourselves, of feeling proud that we're better than other people. And above all, because we know that we are God's sons, because we know that we are God's daughters, because we are know we are adopted into his family, every suffering that we endure is bearable because we know the kindness of God in our lives, his loving arms underpinning, holding us, bearing up everything that happens to you and I. We are in the arms of a loving father. Makes all things bearable, even when you don't understand them. So Buddhism might say, accept things. Karma says, you've got to pay for things. Fatalism, fatalism says, you, you can't do anything except be a hero and endure, endure it and die a, a glorious death. Secularism says, everything is meaningless. Just fix it. Do the best you can to fix it. And so I want to say this as I finish. For Christians, for those that know and love Christ, all of those do offer 
some element of truth. I do believe that we do need to stop loving the material world so much. <laughs> we, must, we must not be so concerned with material things. And yes, the Bible does say that much of the pain in the world is the result of sin, of people turning away from God's way. And yes, we do need to learn to endure bad things and not let them overwhelm us. And secularism is right to challenge us and say, don't just accept the world as it, as it is, the, the things that harm people. You can do something to change the world. Uh, we can learn that from, from a secular worldview. We must make the world a better place. But for us as believers, everyone who knows Jesus here this morning, those approaches are, are not the whole truth. They are at best half-truths. And we see this in the life and the redeeming work of Jesus. And he brings all things into a whole that transcends all of those things in the most amazing way. You see, Christianity enables us, faith in Jesus enables us to see the world completely differently. It, see, it empowers us to sit in the middle of this complex world where we can't understand everything and we see all the sorrow and pain around us and it still allows us, it still enables us to taste joy and know the good that is still coming. That's the great hope of the Christian faith. It enables us to see that under everything that threatens to overwhelm us are the everlasting arms of our Father holding us up, sustaining us, bearing us, carrying us, delivering us. And the promise in, in Isaiah is even into your old age, when your hair is turning gray, God still will be upholding you, bearing you, carrying you in His loving arms. This is the great promise. People might do all sorts of stuff to us during the course of our lives and intend those things for evil. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. He works all things together for good for you and I. I've tried my best to convince you this morning and I want to finish with a question. Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him with your life? Will you trust Him with your future? Will you trust Him in spite of the bad things that you might see in your life that have happened? Will you trust Him despite all the stuff you see in the world, stuff that you don't understand? Will you believe by faith in the everlasting arms of the Father underneath you, loving you, upholding you, sustaining you, taking you forward into your future and your destiny? He is a good Father. That's what He has for you. He wants you to believe that. He wants you to live like that, not giving in to the pressure of all these other things, but know that He's a good Father to you. We had testimonies of this morning of people in detail expressing something of the goodness of their Father towards them. He has those same things for you and for me. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask Andrew to come and lead us as we finish. And just respond in worship. I want to encourage you, if you need prayer of any kind, if you are, have moments now that you just need someone to stand with you, if you're going through a very difficult thing right now, and you want some prayer, I want to ask you to come forward during the singing of the song, and we will pray with you. The, the ministry team will pray with you, and we'll trust God for breakthrough for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you for your everlasting arms that are underneath us, upholding us, sustaining us. Uh, Lord, we, we ask that you'd help us to navigate through this world, which is 
complex and so often so so difficult to see when evil seems to be confronting us on so many levels. But we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for all that he achieved for, for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that because of that we are adopted as sons and daughters into your family, that we don't have to fear the future because we know that your loving arms are under us, sustaining us in every way. And Lord, that is a mystery. Sometimes we, we, we can't get our heads around it, but we do thank you for the reality of your love and your grace and your kindness in our lives that enables us to break free, free of all those things that would, would seek to kind of uh, draw our attention away from, from you as our good Father. And I pray, Lord, as we worship now, as we just sing to you, that you would seal these things in, your, in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we thank you this morning for all that you've done. You're a good father towards us. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone that doubts that this morning, they would be convinced by you this morning of your heart towards them, that you're kind and good in every way. And these light and momentary troubles will one day disappear, and we will meet you and see you face to face. And we put our trust in all that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.